things. Oops. I wanted to start this morning, I think, uh, partially because where we are in the book of Acts, uh, partially uh, just because reading the news, uh, it seems like a good idea to me. I want to start this morning uh, by reminding, uh, reminding ourselves uh, something that Jesus said, kind of looking forward to the period that we're in in Acts, in Acts chapter 9. So in John 15, Jesus has just been giving some commentary about what uh, followers of Christ can expect from the world, and he kind of concludes this discussion about the hatred of the world uh, upon Christ and upon followers of Christ with uh, a little bridge between uh, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And uh, John chapter 15, verse 26, he says, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told told them to you. And so this morning, as as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to continue on with Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, I thought it would be fitting that uh, as we start kind of the conversion of Saul, that we remind ourselves that Jesus very clearly predicted that there would be people who sought to kill uh, followers of Christ thinking that they were offering service to God. Uh, I want to read our text this morning. We're going to look at the conversion of Paul in, in two parts. So this morning, We'll go through uh, verses 1 through about the first half of verse 19. There we read, But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days and three, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, 
Rise and go to the street that is called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful and grateful for the grace that you extend to us in Christ, but Lord, uh, also grateful for the rich treasure of your word. Lord, we uh, echo Adam and, and pray that we would be people of the word, God, that you would uh, grant us now humble hearts, Lord, that we would sit under your word, Lord, that as we continue to see how the grace of Christ unfolded uh, in the church of Acts, God, that our minds would be uh, challenged, Lord, that our hearts would be pricked, Lord, that we would continue to see ways in which uh, the gospel worked out uh, in that community and could further work out in our own community. Lord, we pray uh, that as you uh, conform each of us to Christ's likeness, God, as you uh, continue to knit this body together, God, that the power of the gospel would be more and more evident in us, and both as a testimony to us uh, of the treasure of Jesus Christ, but God, also to a watching world who does not yet know him. God, we pray uh, that we would, we would see and savor the truth of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So our, uh, our text begins by kind of jumping back to Saul. We were introduced to Saul very briefly at the stoning of Stephen, and uh, you know, Saul is kind of, uh, you know, not mentioned much, but there's probably enough uh, detail at the stoning of Stephen to know that uh, Saul is very much an opponent of the church, very much approves of the murder of Stephen, and uh, as, uh, well, everything happens between uh, the stoning of Stephen and now, and Luke swings back to Saul uh, in chapter 9 with uh, but Saul, so kind of catching us up on what has happened in Saul's life since the stoning of Stephen, uh, he is still breathing threats of murder 
against the disciples of the Lord, right? If anything, uh, Saul has strengthened in his resolve to oppose the church, and Saul, uh, being an intelligent man and knowing that the church is now spreading far beyond Jerusalem, apparently makes it a priority to go to Damascus and to halt the progress of the church there, which, uh, you know, Paul's a kind of a, a smart guy. Uh, Saul, excuse me, I'm going to do that a lot. I, it's Paul to me, I can't help it. Uh, Saul uh, understands, I think, that uh, Damascus, even more so than Jerusalem, is like crossroads of the world. Uh, Damascus is a, is a very cosmopolitan city. There's very much more traffic and trade through Damascus. Damascus is an influential city in a lot of ways that Jerusalem isn't. And so if the church takes hold in Damascus, it's going to spread like wildfire from there. And so Saul, I think, makes it a priority to stop the progress of the church in Damascus, takes the initiative uh, to go to the chief priests and ask for letters of introduction to the synagogue uh, or synagogues of Damascus so that he can gather up any people preaching the name of Christ in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem for a trial before the Sanhedrin and then ultimately jail or death. And so he uh, sets out, assuming we, he has the letters, and he sets out towards Damascus. And Damascus is about a, a six-day journey from Jerusalem by walking. Uh, so Saul is making his way there, and he seems to have closed in on the city. And at that point, a light flashes or shines around him a blinding light, and Saul falls to the ground and then hears a heavenly voice uh, calling to him directly, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, it, it's a little bit hard for me to like imagine, I guess, uh, this whole scenario, because as uh, Luke fills out the details, and actually the, this conversion account is shared twice more, two more times towards the end of the Acts. And if you take all of the different accounts and hold all of the details related by Saul together, right, that, like, this is, a, this is a crazy scene. And even here at this description, nine, like, this is a crazy scene. But Saul uh, is aware enough of what's going on to respond, well, who are you, Lord? And, uh, you know, in addressing him as Lord, I, I think he knows that this is God. He, he knows that this is God, but uh, I suspect probably if you're Saul, uh-oh, right? Like, what are the options at this point? Either it's God himself appearing to say, good job, keep it up, get to Damascus and arrest these Christians, or God is going to say, something like God actually says. And, uh, you know, probably Saul is aware of that fact, but then uh, the Lord makes it explicit. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And remember again that Saul was present at the stoning of Stephen. He heard Stephen testify, like, I see heavens open up. I see the risen Lord Christ. And Saul not seeing that, but hearing Stephen say it, might have that in his mind at this moment, like, I'm seeing the same thing that Stephen saw, 
And then, uh-oh. But I think there's a detail here in, in how Jesus addresses Saul that we also ought to note. Uh, and I'll talk about it more later. But uh, note in the text, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, right? Who has Paul been attacking? Who has Saul been attacking? Professors of Christ, right? Jesus is ascended. He's attacking Christians. He's arresting Christians. He's seeing Christians killed. Yet, when Jesus addresses him, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That Jesus so closely identifies with his people, the church, that an attack on the church is an attack on the person of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to continue to kind of walk through the text and fill this out, but lodge that in your mind. Jesus goes on uh, in this vision and tells Saul that to continue on to Damascus, and when you get there, you'll find out what's going to happen next. And uh, the whole time, and these guys don't really play a central part in the story, but the whole time, uh, the guys who were with Saul are standing there. And no, it, Luke doesn't tell us who they are, probably uh, their temple guards from Jerusalem that have gone with Paul, Saul, to help him arrest people in Damascus. But uh, they're hearing the voice, but seeing no one, right? They, they, they're aware of the light, they hear the voice, uh, or maybe hear the sound is what it's saying, like they can hear an indistinguishable sound. They don't know what's being said, but they can hear some sound, but they see no one. They're not, they don't understand what's happening, but Saul stands up uh, with uh, the light vanishing and opens his eyes, but is able to see nothing. So these Guys, they know that Paul just had, Saul just had some kind of vision, uh, but they maybe don't know what, and they don't even know if there was a voice. They just know that there was a sound, and so they lead Saul into Damascus, and for three days uh, he is blind and fasting. Uh, he won't eat, he won't drink. Uh, you know, this is. Uh, presumably a terrifying experience for Saul, that uh, Jesus Christ uh, appeared to him, accused him of persecuting God himself, and uh, Saul doesn't know what's going to happen next. Just go to Damascus and wait. And at the same time that all this is happening, uh, Jesus appears to another man, Ananias. And Ananias isn't going to appear much in Acts. Uh, this is about as much as we're ever going to know about him. But I think uh, there's a lot we could learn from Ananias uh, for as little as we know about him. Uh, the Lord also appears to Ananias in a vision. And Ananias' response is, here I am, Lord, or, or yes, Lord, like, I'm ready to do what you say. And so the Lord instructs him to go to the street that's called Straight. Interestingly, this street is still in Damascus. Uh, and it's like the only straight street that runs east and west in Damascus. Uh, 
And he goes to, uh, or he tells him to go to the house of Judas and look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And this is Ananias's uh-oh moment. Uh, Saul, I hear you. Uh, for behold, he is praying. Right? So as Saul is uh, fasting, and now we know praying uh, in his blindness, waiting to know what's going to happen next, God is appearing to Ananias and telling him to go to Saul, and now his purpose in going to Saul is to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias immediately responds, uh, here's the thing, Jesus. Uh, I've heard a lot about this guy, and I've heard everything that he's done in Jerusalem. And at this point, I think, stop again and note a couple things that are kind of assumed in this narrative that maybe we should say out loud. Number one, uh, Ananias isn't a refugee from Jerusalem. He hasn't witnessed anything that Paul did. He's heard about it. And so the Luke hasn't recorded for us to this point in Acts uh, all of the spread of the gospel or all of the ways in which the gospel has spread. Apparently, the church had spread to Damascus by this point apart from the persecution falling on the church. And so, like, implicitly in this narrative, we're seeing that Luke has recorded for us a lot of the progress of the gospel, but the gospel was progressing in a lot of ways that uh, Luke doesn't record for us. Uh, and second, uh, that the evil that Saul was doing, his harm to the church was uh, so grievous and so well known that Saul's reputation had very much preceded him to Damascus. Ananias is very aware of who Saul of Tarsus is, and he thinks maybe there must be some mistake in who Jesus is wanting to go talk to, right? Here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, right? Not only do I know what this guy has been doing in Jerusalem, but I know that he's come here to Damascus to do the same thing. And just so we're clear, I'm one of the people, Jesus, who calls on your name. And so it seems ill-advised for me to go and talk to the Saul character, especially if it ends up with him regaining his eyesight. And I don't think that we should take uh, Ananias' response as a, a, a sinful sort of doubt or a lack of trust in Jesus, right? He's just struggling to comprehend God's instruction to him. Like, why on earth would I, would I do this? It's not... Uh, it's not wrong of a servant of God to, to desire, like, why would this happen? Because, I think, in the front end and on the back end, we see that Ananias' response is obedience, right? When God calls on him, he says, here I am, Lord, I'm ready to obey you. He expresses confusion about why exactly Jesus would want him to do what Jesus is now asking him to do, and when Jesus responds, go, Ananias goes. Jesus' response to Ananias is, do it. And then he does offer some explanation. In fact, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Right? 
God's promise to Ananias is that he is going to redeem Saul for his use, that Ananias is going to be an instrument that God uses for the further progress of the gospel, and uh, additionally, that he will end up suffering for the sake of Christ himself. And the crazy turn of chapter 9 is verse 16, that the guy who had inflicted the most suffering upon the church ends up becoming, by the book of Acts, the guy probably who has suffered the most for the sake of the church. Uh, And it's all, uh, verses 15 and 16, clearly a part of the sovereign plan of God, that it, it didn't accidentally end up that way, but God knew exactly what was going to happen. Everything that had been happening up to this with false persecution of the church was in the sovereign plan of God, and everything that flows out of Saul's conversion is a part of the sovereign plan of God. And verse 16 is God's expression of that fact. I've I've been planning on this. I have a plan for him in the future, and it will be that he suffers for my sake in the same way that he's made everybody else who follows me suffer to this point. So Ananias goes. He goes to Judas's house and uh, lays his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? And note that when Jesus appears to Ananias, it was for the regaining of the sight of Saul. Ananias is understood Uh, based on 15 and 16, enough of what God intends that he feels confident in adding and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He now understands that in his courage and going to Saul and uh, participating in God's redemption of Saul, that ultimately it ends with the redemption of Saul, that God is calling Saul into the fold and uh, as he expresses this, scales fall from Paul's eyes, Saul's eyes, He regains his sight, he stands, and is baptized. Immediately he recognizes uh, that his opposition to the church is opposition to the people of God, and so if he truly wants to serve God, he should identify with the true people of God, the church. And so he's baptized, takes food, and is strengthened. And I wanted to to stop at this point rather than working through the full conversion narrative, because I think there's a lot that's happening in this text uh, that should affect the way that we think about things. Uh, number one, uh, Paul, Saul, Paul. I'll just say Paul. That'll be easier for all of us, Paul. Uh, Saul is a a fascinating character, right? Uh, Saul is, uh, he, he explains at length later in the New Testament, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He has as good a pedigree as a Jew as anybody could possibly have, right? He is, uh, he is undeniably Jewish uh, in every way imaginable. In fact, he is uh, better trained than anybody else in the Old Testament scriptures. He has uh, one of the most renowned history or teachers in the history of the temple 
uh, as his direct instructor in the Old Testament. He knows the Scripture inside and out. He, uh, but despite the fact that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews with an unparalleled understanding of the Old Testament, at the same time, he somehow grew up outside of Jerusalem in Tarsus, right? A Greek-speaking city with a very Greek-Latin culture, uh, very cosmopolitan in ways that Jerusalem was not. Uh, he is the, the strangest juxtaposition of things that you could possibly imagine, really, like being far more Greek than some Jews in a lot of ways and far more Jewish than a lot of Jews in some ways. And you look at Paul's circumstances, and I think it's probably pretty easy to imagine that uh, Saul would have wished, uh, well, I wish I would have just been born in Jerusalem, or I wish things were different, right? That uh, it's a very weird combination of factors in the life of Saul that makes Saul Saul, uh, but it results in him having an unparalleled understanding of Jewish culture and simultaneously having an unparalleled understanding of Greek culture. And because he was born in Tarsus, Tarsus isn't the only city where he could have garnered that understanding, but Tarsus is one of the rare cities where being born in Tarsus means you're also a Roman citizen. And we're going to see several times looking forward in the book how Paul being a Roman citizen ends up significantly serving the advance of the gospel. And uh, I, I do something I don't typically do. I want to read for you uh, just a brief comment from uh, Blakeock, a commentator. No other man known to history from that time combined these qualities as did Paul of Tarsus. It is difficult to imagine any other place than Tarsus whose whole atmosphere and history could have so effectively produced them in one person. And, you know, everything I've mentioned to you is pretty generally recognized as things that are going to end up making Paul, Paul. Like the Paul we know, Paul, is sort of a product of God using all of these strands being woven together in Saul's life. And before we really get it, most of the rest of the book of Acts is going to be uh, the progress of the gospel through Paul. And before we get into that, I want to point out explicitly to you that in God's calling of Saul, right, uh, this chosen instrument of mine, uh, in God's calling of Saul uh, for uh, he says several reasons, right? To the Jews, to the Gentiles, to uh, kings, and by the end of Acts, we'll see Paul preaches the gospel clearly to Felix, to Festus, to King Agrippa. He, it's after Acts, but he, he ends up in the court of the emperor Nero, uh, that God does exactly through Saul what he says he's going to do through Saul, but largely that's a product of... Uh, circumstances that in the moment nobody really would have understood, right? Like, nobody would have said, man, I'm glad all these things are true of me. Saul, at this point, probably wasn't saying, man, I'm glad all these things are true of me. And so, I want to explicitly make the point to you that uh, that probably isn't really unique to Saul, 
that we all are people probably who in the moment uh, don't particularly understand our circumstances. At a lot of times, some of our circumstances seem to work against others. And uh, that uh, with the person of Paul, we are going to see with clear hindsight how the Lord used a, a confusing set of circumstances ultimately to produce exactly what he wants. And it serves the progress of the gospel. And my encouragement to you, would be, I, I can with confidence say that the same thing is true for every person who puts their trust in Christ, right? Absolutely everything uh, about your life, ultimately God is weaving together to produce what he wants to produce. And that's not a comfortable life necessarily. It might not be an easy life, but it certainly is greater conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. That God is weaving circumstances that might not seem to make sense here and now together in such a way that he is going to mold you into greater Christ-likeness. And uh, I think at this point in my life, I can look back at circumstance after circumstance after circumstance that in the moment were difficult, painful, hard, unwanted, and see ultimately how in some way or another they contributed to my growth in Christ-likeness or my ability to encourage others in Christ. And I'm absolutely sure without knowing what circumstance you're dealing with, whether it's health or family strife or uh, something difficult that no one could possibly imagine, that God is using those circumstances in such a way that he's further conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ and that it will result in the progress of the gospel. And so Paul's story as we go through Acts, right, should constantly be a reminder to us that we should probably see our circumstances differently than we do. Right? Like if we're thinking about uh, what's going to happen in these circumstances in 10 minutes or 20 or 5 hours or 6 months, right, our view is too small. That Saul is a guy who's going to remind us again and again that we should look at our circumstances the way that God looks at our circumstances. And even as you say all that, kind of front-loading the story of Paul, I think that there's something to be gained from thinking about Ananias, this guy we know uh, very little about. But what we know about Ananias, I think absolutely should uh, inspire us, right? Like, uh, he is very aware of who Paul is. His response at God's call is, here I am, Lord, ready to obey. When God gives him specific instruction, as bewildering as it might be, and as much as he might express a failure to understand what exactly that God is doing, when God makes the instruction clear, Ananias obeys. And, you know, if in Ananias' circumstances, his response is, yes, Lord, when God makes something clear to us, right, what should be our response? Our response should be Ananias' response. And as we walk through Acts, we're not even halfway through Acts, and I suspect probably there's some people that are thinking, 
when on earth is he going to stop saying, share the gospel with people? Good grief, that's all he says. Well, you know what? Never. Uh, get used to it. We're in Acts, first of all. And second of all, if that ever goes through your mind, like your contention is not with me, your contention is with God. Right? Ananias is called on by the Lord. Go to Saul. Saul. Ananias is like, you know what he does? And he's like, yeah, go. And Ananias goes. Right? Like, I was shrunk in my chair this week uh, thinking about the fact that, like, <laughs> I'm in Ananias' situation, but I'm not in Ananias' circumstances, if that makes sense, right? Like, the, the text is very clear. I am supposed to share the gospel with people. And what's holding me up when I'm like, nah, is not like, they'll probably arrest me and kill me or put me in jail for the rest of my life if I share the gospel with them. What's holding me up is, I don't know, that neighbor will probably look at me differently or that coworker will think that I'm weird or like, what on earth? Like, what is going through our minds? I know it's not just me. I know it's all of us. God gave us clear instruction. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's holding us up is a funny look from somebody else. Like, our response to Jesus' command that we share the gospel with anybody we have the opportunity to share the gospel with should be exactly what Ananias' is. I don't care what the circumstances are. My desire is to obey you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Here I am, Lord. I... I was humbled by a guy who embraced knowingly the possibility that he might be jailed or worse and obeyed the Lord. And I hope that in making that explicit, we're all humbled too. But I think probably if, if three things to think about were too many things to think about in one sermon, I would suggest to you that this is the one thing that I would like you to think about this week. Uh, the person of Jesus Christ here. You see, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, again, it ends up being the underpinning of uh, Paul's ultimate claim to apostleship. Right? But in Paul coming, or in Saul seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ here, in uh, Saul hearing that Jesus so closely identifies with the people of the church that persecution of the church is persecution of Jesus Christ himself. I think we are seeing something uh, clear. Very clear. And what Luke seems to be doing here, I think, is helping us grow in our understanding of what exactly the gospel is, right? Last week with the Ethiopian eunuch, we saw that it doesn't matter who you are, that anyone can come to God in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. And in Saul, we're seeing it doesn't matter what you've done. Anyone can come to Jesus Christ. Right? That the, the hope that God holds out in the person of Jesus Christ, the offer of salvation that God holds out in the person of Jesus Christ 
is open to anyone who will receive it. And so, uh, you know, as the narrative builds, I think at, at this point, if you have not yet followed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't know what could possibly be holding you back. There is no question that anyone who will receive Jesus Christ can come to him. There is no question that there is nothing you can do that would prevent you from receiving the grace of God if you would. That anyone can come to Christ in faith. That there should be nothing keeping you from coming to Christ. And even as I say that, I I would say that for those of you who uh, would say uh, you you are God's in Christ, that this text should give you an overwhelming sense of confidence. Uh, Number one, that Jesus so closely identifies with you that mistreatment of you is taken by Christ as mistreatment of him. But uh, more than that, I think it should uh, inspire those of us who believe. This this, uh, outworking of the gospel being that Jesus Christ so deeply cares for those who are his that he takes mistreatment of them or blessing of them as mistreatment or blessing of he himself. That that should fuel in us a far greater love for the people of God than we presently have. In the same way that we could never say that we love Christ enough, I think what we're seeing in this text and Jesus' identification with the church, that we could never say that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough. That our love for each other, our grace to each other, our mercy to one another, our compassion for each other, our willingness to serve each other, that each of those things, in a way, is an expression of our love for Jesus Christ. That uh, I think what we've seen in Acts and now is being expressed here by Christ himself is what was evident in the early church is an understanding that their love for each other was ultimately an expression of their love for Christ. And I... There is stuff I'd love to encourage, but you're all different people. Uh, you all have different gifts. You all have different experiences. You're all at different stages of life. Uh, that there probably aren't uh, a lot of things I could say generally other than love your brothers and sisters that would be true for everyone in the room. Uh, your love for your brothers and sisters will probably look different than the love of the people sitting next to you. Right? Uh, whatever your spiritual gift is, use it. Uh, however you can bless the people around you, do it. That uh, if, if, if you have uh, a desire to display joy and gratitude for what God has given you in Jesus Christ, then express it to the brothers and sisters sitting around you. Love them well, 
serve them well. Know that your love for them and your service to them is ultimately an expression of your love for Christ. That uh, a theme that we, I think, see through the book of Acts again and again and again is uh, the gospel is constantly held out as the only hope for sinners in opposition to God. It's the only thing that can offer hope. And I don't ever want you to understand me exhorting you to do something as if that thing would make you in any way more pleasing in God's sight, because it won't. The only thing that makes you pleasing in God's sight is what Christ has done on your behalf. And at the same time that I say that to you, I very much want you to understand that the only appropriate response, the response of the church uh, in Acts is always they receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ and in joy they act. They display for the world what Christ has done in them. And that is my exhortation to you. Receive the love that God gives us in Jesus Christ and then act in worship knowing that God has given us all things in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for the grace that You have bestowed on us in Jesus Christ. God, it is by Him and Him alone that we can come to You. And Lord, we may often delude ourselves into thinking we're not all that bad, yet God, we know that our sin puts us uh, in as bad a position as Saul was ever in. And that we are all rebels against your rule. God, that we deserve death. God, separation from you. And yet in love, you sent Christ and you pursued us in our own rebellion. And God, you have set us apart as your people through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we pray that you would press more deeply in our heart the marvel of this grace. God, that we would be continually transformed. God, that we would uh, understand more and more deeply all that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And God, that that understanding would shape the affections of our heart. God, that we would increasingly desire to uh, express worship for all that you've done to us. God, that we would increasingly desire to uh, pursue the things that delight your own heart. God, that we would be people always seeking to extol your name and to exhort others to receive Christ as we have. And we pray that you would do this for your glory and for the building of Christ's church. In his name we pray. Amen.